First of all, I'd like to open up in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your word, which is a, a word to live by, to hide in our hearts, to walk by each day of our life. We pray as we would look at this portion of scripture that you would guide and direct in every way. So we place ourselves in your hands, and we do thank you in Jesus' name. We've been looking at the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, probably written about from Corinth. Um, it's one of Paul's earliest epistles. And for this time this morning, we want to focus on several verses that are from chapter 2. We've been introduced to the first portion of chapter by Evan. And this morning, we want to look at the last portion. This, is, this letter is the first of two that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian saints. He had visited the area on his second mission journey, and I believe that was around 050 or 52 AD, about 20 years after the resurrection of the Lord. And Paul's approach to evangelism was to share Christ at the local synagogues and anywhere else that people would gather, such as the marketplaces or other places where they would gather. He wasn't in with the Thessalonians very long, about three Sabbath or three weeks. This is, as I said, the first of two letters that Paul wrote to these saints. He had visited, as I said, uh, on a second missions journey. I can imagine Paul as he's ministering to these individuals in these Thessalonian saints, bringing up the Old Testament, pointing to the Lord Jesus by the use of the Old Testament scripture, pointing to Christ who died on the cross for them and rose again from the grave. Just as the prophets of old came and bearing the message inspired by God to a wayward nation, Israel, Paul was inspired and directed by God to bring a message of hope to these uh, Thessalonian believers. Churches were established, and they were meeting assemblies, were meeting in Judea. And we see that mentioned in the second chapter, verse 14. And in Acts 2.42, we get a description of how the church met. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. And these are the basic elements of meeting as believers gathered together. Teaching, fellowship, taking the bread and the wine, remembering the Lord's death and resurrection, as he called us to do, and prayer. And most of the meetings such as ours meet that way. I just got through reading a, or rereading a book written by a dear friend and saint who ministered in the Orlando area and all around the country for many years. Uh, during World War II, he was a, made a prisoner of war when, when uh, the Japanese captured Burma. And he was a prisoner of war for 42 months in Thailand, and they were building a railroad. They called it the Railroad of Death. 
So was there 42 months of continual torment? The only possession he had was his Bible, and he had to hide it from his captors continually. From place to place he would have to hide it. And to him, it was not just a book. It was the very word of God. And in looking at this portion, I'm going to try and stick to the outline that was proposed by the elders here at the chapel. And one of the first thoughts they had was to that God's word is within us. It is to be appreciated. It is to be appropriate. It is to be applied. For something to appreciate means it is to recognize an increased value of it and to be applied. And something to be appreciated means to, again, it is, becomes important in your lives. Appropriate means something is proper, it's right, it's correct. And for something to be applied is to, means that it is put on. It is something utilized in our lives. My message this morning begins with 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where the word says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. These Jewish believers and, and possibly some Gentiles in their midst, these Thessalonians, did not have the complete written word as we have it. But Paul pointed out to them from the scripture that they did have. And scripture tells us that there's, a, there's over, up to or over 300 references to Christ in the Old Testament. And Paul was directly led by God in such a way as to say, as to say that would, what would turn these Jewish people into believers in the risen Lord. You might say they appropriated or appreciated the word. They welcomed it as the word of God, not of men. They recognized the value of it and it became important to them, first in their salvation and then in their walk. But there always seems to be some objections to ones you come in contact in regard to the Bible being the word of God. Even among those who call themselves Christians, Paul made this very clear concerning the scripture. He wrote his last letter to Timothy, which was his last letter, I believe, some 15 years after this epistle to the Thessalonians was written. And what he said there was, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. These, the Thessalonians found a word to be appropriate in their lives. They understood it to be inspired by God for the guidance in their walk and also our, our walk in Christ. It will teach us. It will rebuke us. It will identify sin in our life. It will be our guide, our instruction manual in righteousness. As Paul writes, 
that by the word we become thoroughly equipped for every good work. Before I became a child of the Lord, a child of the King, some 50 years ago, I saw in believers a life that was not guided by personal desire, but by a higher source. The higher source, I, I learned, was found in the word of God. And as a young believer, a dear brother from this meeting opened a word to me every Friday evening at his home, and we met weekly for quite a while. He's with the Lord now, enjoying his eternal home. To the Thessalonians many years ago, the word of God became their guide for life as it is also for us. It is our guide of life. Paul saw himself as a father figure to these Thessalonian believers. And we read that again that in chapter 2 of First Thessalonians. And he rejoiced as to how these believers accepted Christ as a true Messiah and were living righteous lives, discarding their worshiping of idols. They applied the scripture and the inspired words of Paul in their lives. The application of God's word in our life is really a test of our true commitment to the Lord. When I went to engineering school, I learned many engineering fundamentals, many concepts of how things function and work. But when I was at my job, I applied what I learned in school. We are called to study the word of God, but we do not hide it. We do not hide what we know. We are to apply it in our lives. Paul began this section of scripture by writing, it was for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. He thanked God for that their walk was guided by the word of the Lord. What was the outcome of them living in for Christ? We read in the 14th verse of this chapter, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judah, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Judeans. This section of scripture can be outlined by two points. The first one is God's people around us. We see in this section the early evolving church, how it met, and the persecution that it experienced. It seemed that as a church evolved, it was always faced with persecution. It is the time in this in world, we have the same thing. There are many places where the church is not welcomed. The second point is God's glory before us. The splendor of the Lord, his grandeur, is a joy to Paul. And Paul is overjoyed by the reports that he got from Timothy. His Thessalonian brothers and sisters were going on in the Lord, even though they were being persecuted, just like the saints in Judah. God's glory is always seen in the life of the saints today. And as we go on in the Lord each day of our life, Paul looks forward. He looked forward to the coming of the Lord when he would, see, would be rejoined with these saints from Thessalonica. It was a joy that he would experience, and it's a joy 
that we also would experience. The first, looking at the first point, let me finish reading what it says in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God, which is in Judah, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same thing from your countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Their meetings were simple. I've already mentioned how they lived day by day, guided by the apostles' teachings or doctrines. They shared together in fellowship. They remembered the Lord around the table, and they prayed. The visible church today that we see in the world has strayed away from these simple truths. We see ritualism and formalism that seem to have crept in. There's a lot of talking to talk, but not much walking to walk. Witnessing of Christ in your life is not only judged by the words you speak, but what you do and how you act in the name of Christ. In fact, actions do speak louder than words. Meeting like the early believers did in Judea might have included, as the scripture tells us, these early believers had all things in common. They shared, they shared and they cared for each other. Those who had more shared with those who had less. They loved each other. They stood out as, as different. They stood out as different from those around them. Things might have changed somewhat, somewhat in the 20 years or so since the first meetings that were recorded in Acts 2. But it appears that they were following a pattern set by Judea and were experiencing similar persecutions. What was happening was not overlooked by their neighbors. Many were turning to the Lord. But we read in Acts 17 that there were mobs that were formed and the city was in an uproar. And caused by some wicked men, they sort of gathered people from the marketplace that were a kind of low-caliber character. And we are told in the Acts account about that. Scripture says they dragged out this man that Paul was staying with. He was staying with a man named Jason, along with his friends. And they cried out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Many years ago, this chapel had a group of Chinese believers who met here on Sunday afternoon. On one Saturday, the brothers here had a breakfast meeting with our Chinese brothers. And one of the young brothers from the Chinese meeting shared concerning his father in China. His father was a believer and he was taken into custody by the authorities. And his punishment was to walk around a town where he lived, where he knew everybody, with a sign on his chest identifying himself as a Christian. 
and he was not kindly dealt with as he walked among his neighbors. What happens when Satan attacks his called out once, his church? It grows, even if it has to go underground, even if it meets in small groups behind closed shutters. The church in China grew from less than 1 million in 1949 to 58 million in 2010. And it's projected that by 2030, there'll be 230 million believers in China. And that's, that's still a small percentage of the population. But there still is a witness for Christ in China, a country that still persecutes believers. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And what about this country? A research outfit in 2018, and I believe also 2019, made a survey and found that 65% of all surveyed described themselves as Christian. That was about a 12% decline from a survey done 10 years ago. Those describing themselves as atheists, agnostics, agnostics, or nothing in particular were found to be up by 17% from the survey done in 2009. I wondered, I looked in my wallet and I wanted to check if In God We Trust was still on our currency, and it is. But it's not so true in this country today. With persecution comes evangelism. With an easy life comes complacency or contentment with the status quo. We've been going through the Old Testament prophets in our Wednesday meetings. The meeting, the message of every one of the prophets is for God's chosen people to turn away from the worship of idols and other pagan practices and return to God who loves them. The, their words, the words of the prophets were those of a loving father reaching out to a wayward son or daughter. And Paul reminds us, these Thessalonians Jews, that 20 years before it was the Jews in Judea that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. The words of the psalmist David and the prophet Isaiah have been fulfilled. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, the burden of our sin was placed upon him placed upon our Lord on that Roman cross as the Father turned his eyes from his beloved Son. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The wounds of the cross leading to his death brought salvation to these Thessalonians some 2,000 years ago, and to us today. Paul also mentions in the 15th verse, they have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and, on, on, con, and are contrary or hostile to all men. Why was Paul and those with him persecuted? They were persecuted because the words of God spoken through Paul. Persecution was not something new to Paul and his group. Repent and be saved was not easily accepted. On the same trip, 
the second trip he took, his teaching caused an uproar in Philippi, a city about 100 miles away. And the accusations of the, in Philippi were the same as in Thessalonica. They were dragged in front of the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Among almost, these are almost the same words that were said by the Thessalonian mob. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The status quo of the Roman system was not something to go against. And at that time, the Roman Caesar was worshipped as some sort of a god. He was considered divine. Nero was Caesar's, was the Caesar of Rome at that particular time. And he violently persecuted both Jews and Christians. And Paul and Peter are said to have died at the hands of Nero about 68 AD. This was just before Nero himself committed suicide. Disruption of the Roman law and tradition was not tolerated. What about today? Do we call ourselves evangelical? I have heard comments from someone who was a godly woman, and her words were, and I think I'm quoting this pretty accurately, I hate evangelicals for what they are doing to our country. And she was speaking about the riot in the Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And a news commentator wrote, why isn't the media telling the truth? The riot was led by the president at that time, but made possible by thousands of demonstrators who came from the white evangelical churches. Churches organized hundreds of groups in cars, buses, and planes. I don't know why the word evangelical has become associated with violence. A Christian is a follower of Christ. The term evangelical comes from the Greek word good news and the good news of salvation by grace and grace alone. And we might ask the question, is the church in for a time of trouble before the Lord calls us home? It may have drifted a little bit away from our first point, God's people around us. The world is not for the church, but we have strength even during times of trial because of the oneness we have in Christ, one Lord and one body. And what about the second point? It speaks of Satan hindering and the final victory we have in Christ. Let me read the next set of verses. This is First Thessalonians two seventeen and 18. But we, brethren, haven't been taken away from you for a short time in in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But what? But Satan hindered us. 
It was Paul's desire to see these Thessalonian believers again. And he regretted that he could not have been with them longer or that he was being prevented from returning because of serious opposition and persecution caused by these unruly mobs that he experienced both in Philippi and Thessalonica. Satan uses many means to prevent the spread of the gospel. And during Paul's ministry, Satan stirred up mobs who would disrupt the people. Today, Satan may use more subtle ways. He downplays himself. I'm going to display my age now, but some of you may remember. More than 30 years ago, Flip Wilson kept this country kind of in stitches with his television character, Reverend Leroy. He was the friendly, pompous pastor of the church of what's happening now. And Geraldine Jones, the sassy lady in a miniskirt, and whenever Geraldine would impulsively do something that she shouldn't be doing, she excused herself by uttering a line that she became famous for. The devil made me do it. For some time, you, in conversations, you might hear others say, as a joke, the devil made me do it. Downplaying his agenda keeps lost souls from Christ. The Lord, the devil uses many means to promote his agenda. To Adam, it was a beautiful tree, a fruit tree. To Job, Satan was allowed to inflict physical anguish trying to break him. Even Paul was touched with anguish. He wrote, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. His deliverer, his deliverer and our deliverer is the Lord Jesus. And Satan will use any means to tempt us. Enough about Satan. How does Paul conclude this portion of scripture? For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. One day the Lord will take us home to be with him. And Paul tells us later in this epistle that the Lord will descend from heaven and with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive will be raised up to meet him in the air. What is Paul's hope or joy or crown of rejoicing. It is to see these saints again at the time of the rapture of the church. And we have a great hope in Christ. He will never leave us or forsake us while we're here on this earth. He is preparing a place for each one of us in our eternal home. He is coming to get us so that we will be with him forever and ever. And what greater joy can there be? I will see that brother who helped me in the scripture 50 years ago. I will see my wife, Kathy, who along with others 
witness to me, pointing me to Christ. And all of us will rejoice in the glory of our Lord. God's glory is before us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the word again. We thank you for the Apostle Paul as he brings it to us, opening up the promises that are before each one of us. We thank you, it's by grace we are saved, and not of works, but by faith. If it were by works, we would make a thing out of it. We would boast. But it's by grace and grace alone that we are saved, and we thank you so much for that. So we thank you for the words of Paul, and we thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus and the promises that we have from him. And we do pray in his precious name. Amen.